0: Welcome to another episode of ForestWorks, the show that delves into all things forestry, the people, the stories, and the places of British Columbia's single largest industry. Well, for now. You can hear us Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. on Radio NL out of Kamloops. ForestWorks is also a podcast. You can find it on your favorite podcast app or on our website at forestworks.ca. I'm your host, Stuart Muir. ForestWorks is brought to you by ResourceWorks, looking at how responsible development of British Columbia's natural resources creates jobs and incomes throughout the province, both directly and indirectly, while maintaining a clean and a healthy environment. Today, we're speaking with John Rustad. John is the opposition critic for forestry in our legislature in Victoria. Previously, he served as the Minister of Aboriginal Relations and Reconciliation and the Minister of Forests for British Columbia, Forests, Lands, and Natural Resources Operations. He was also Parliamentary Secretary for Forestry, long career in that field. John, thanks so much for coming on Forest Works.
1: Stuart, my pleasure today.
0: You know, you're not just someone who's served these issues in elected office as an MLA you have also actually got a career in forestry, and that's where I wanted to start with our conversation. I mean, you worked for 20 years in the forest industry. Even before you got into the world of elected service, you formed a company called Western Geographic Information Systems to provide consulting services to the forest industry. John, what got you into this?
1: Well, I guess you could say forestry has been in my family. When my dad first moved out to British Columbia back in uh, the late 40s, he started working in the forest sector, and right through there, our family's been very tied to forestry. And so, you know, when I got out, of course, I had been involved in logging, I'd been involved in uh, various types of forestry, and then I went on to uh, doing field work, all kinds of work, including reconnaissance work, dealing with I've even done some tree planting in my time. And then, of course, I started my own company, which provided geographic information systems Primarily analysis work, doing everything from timber supply analysis to forest development plans to watershed analysis, and a whole wide range of other things. So it's it's a good career. Forestry is a great place to be able to spend some time.
0: And when you made the decision to go into politics, and now you're the MLA for Nachaco Lakes, you've served there for a long time, what got you into that?
1: Politics was never an ambition of mine, and I have to tell you, if somebody had asked me in the 90s and said, you know, if you're going to be a politician, I would have been laughing for sure. But in 2000, I was pretty upset with where things were going. You know, the economy was struggling, the province was in, in rough shape. I sat down with my wife and I said to her, what do you think about moving to Calgary? And I could shift my company from working with the forest sector to working with the oil and gas sector. We had a long discussion about it and ultimately, you know, my whole family's in Prince George, Our parents in Prince George got a woodlot license and didn't want to just walk away from everything. So it left me two choices. Either I get involved and try to change it or live with it. And I'm not the kind of person just to live with it, so I got involved and then I discovered I actually like politics, which has you know, also surprised me over the time.
0: I'm sure glad you stayed. You've done so much work as Minister of Forests over the years whenever I've encountered you, be it at a forestry convention where you're speaking to stakeholders in the industry or or in Victoria where you're serving in the legislature, you've always got something knowledgeable. And, and I'm really happy that ForestWorks can be a, a platform today to share some of that knowledge because we've got a big issue on our plate right now. I'm sure anyone who's listening to the show is aware of the, the decision last Tuesday in early November 2021 to put in a, a massive deferral on forest lands in the name of old growth, 2.6 million hectares of forest land deferred so that no activity will take place over at least a couple of years. This decision has been a little difficult to understand. It's been criticized by a lot of First Nations who who feel they could have been consulted on this. We have heard from professionals in the forest professions and academics and industry associations and mayors. People are up in arms. I think that's putting it mildly. Maybe just to, from your perspective, understand what's going on right now, John, in your words, could you describe this recent decision and what you think it signifies?
1: Well, when you look at forestry and forest management, it's good to start with the big picture. BC has about 60 million hectares of forested land base. About 38 million hectares of that is still an original forest state. It will never see any forestry activity. And that leaves about 22 million hectares that's available for the timber Harvesting Land Base. It's also important to remember that as a province, over 15% of our province is actually protected in park. It's something that is larger than any other jurisdiction in Canada and I think in the world. And it's certainly uh, well above the targets that uh, the United Nations has asked countries to try to meet. And so we've done a lot in terms of protecting old growth. About 85% of current old growth is already protected, uh, we've done a lot in terms of how we manage. We're some of the best in the world in terms of managing this renewable resource that's environmentally friendly. However, there is a push by environmental groups and others that have quite frankly provided a lot of misinformation about our forests and about old growth in particular. And so I think the, the province is feeling some pressure. The the uh, current government is feeling some pressure. And this seems to be a political decision because it doesn't seem to be based on, on actual science. And I can give you a couple of examples of that if you'd like. Please do. Some of the area that has been identified now is actually dead pine trees that were killed through the mountain pine beetle epidemic. Some of the areas that are protected have actually been burned. There's other areas where there's some old spruce stands, and they're riddled with spruce beetle right now. So you look at this and you think, where's the science behind how these areas were decided? Where's the science behind what is the targets that were trying to be achieved by this? Where are the performance measures that go along with that? Where's the analysis, the social economic analysis as well that's part of it? All of these things were missing from this announcement, which made me think this certainly seems to be more political than anything else.
0: Looking back over the last year and a bit, there has been a campaign known as Ferry Creek to get the attention of the public over what was claimed to be, you know, you heard phrases like the last stand or there's only 3% of worthwhile old growth left standing. It has to be saved. And it made it sound as if there was like one or two trees left out there and and those big trees are gone and that's it. That's why we have to act. Maybe not one or two, but a a very small number and a sense of alarm and panic being induced that people were supposed to take away the information. Numerous reports, all kinds of different pressure groups from the eco-lobby making these statements. But now we have a report that says there's 2.6 million hectares, which is a vast amount of claimed old growth. As you point out, demonstrably, a lot of that is not even discernible as old growth because it's been burned or pine beetle damage or maybe it's secondary forest. I mean, it's very confusing. How can it be that you've got these wild claims being made that everyone is supposed to have their hair on fire about, but when you come to the actual manifestation of this decision through a report, it's completely at odds with what was claimed and what people were getting upset about. And I think a lot of just ordinary members of the public seeing this information, they'd probably, if that's all they knew, they'd probably be upset too. So how can you square this?
1: It's interesting. One of the recommendations out of the old growth panel that brought a report to government was there needs to be a single source of credible information on forest management, particularly on old growth. And of course, unfortunately, that is not there at the moment. And even some of the old ministry's data conflicts in terms of how some things are being reported. But you know, when, I, when you're talking about Ferry Creek, I actually went up to Ferry Creek. I actually went into the blockade and I sat down and talked with the protesters. And then I went over and had a chat with the chief of Apache, uh, I should say, and then talked about the situation. Because you need to be able to go out and see sort of what's going on and understand these things to be able to come to an opinion as to what's actually happening. And it's unfortunate that fear... And misinformation is part of a campaign to try to get the population, you know, on side with a particular action. It doesn't serve, I think, the province well and certainly doesn't serve the environment well. Forestry, of course, as you know, is one of the most renewable products that you can think of. You know, whether it's your homes, whether it is, you know, furniture, whether it's all the wood products and the derivatives there that we utilize in society, all of that is renewable. All of that is environmentally friendly. And when you look at what the alternatives would be, they are certainly, you know, much more significant impact on, on land base, And so none of that, unfortunately, gets into the conversation about it. It's just driven into this emotion about a large tree that's over a certain age that is being talked about. It's too bad, actually. You know, I went to, you know, I talked about my dad moving out here in the, uh, in the 40s to go to logging. Mm-hmm. I actually went to one of the stands that he originally logged, Vancouver Island, and it's beautiful, beautiful wood, beautiful large trees. You know, it was a great growing site that exists there today, and that was harvested just you know sixty some odd years ago. And so, when you look at what can happen and how our forests react, really a, a better conversation is needed on our forest sector.
0: You're listening to Forest Works, and we're talking today to John Rustad. He's the opposition critic for forestry in Victoria. He himself has been a Minister of Forests. We hope to bring the current Minister of Forests onto Forest Works in the near future. And having John's knowledge today as someone whose career is in forestry, in data analysis, is full of insights for this. So thanks again, John, for being here. I think everyone's appreciating your insights on the kind of technical side. Why don't we move over to another aspect of this, one that has a lot of people I've been talking to quite upset, including your own colleagues in the opposition. I mean, last week we had Mike de Jong, former finance minister of BC, stood up in the house and he had a question for the minister of forests. He said, you've you've got a, an announcement you're making with profoundly negative consequences for people who derive a living from working in BC's forests. Those are Mike's words. He says that experts and stakeholders are already sounded the alarm bells. The imposition of of land use decisions, we're told, will result in the closure upwards of twelve mills. Well, after this statement was made, by the way, the Kofi, the Council of Forest Industries, said it was fourteen to twenty. They're they're estimating even higher, and also two pulp mills. But anyways, in the house, they estimated an overall reduction in the annual allowable cut of between 15 and 20 percent, which means the loss of somewhere between 12,000 and 15,000 jobs. And again, industry is estimating much higher than that. So the question that that your side of the house had for the minister, John, it was, has the government completed a detailed socioeconomic study on the impact that these land use decisions are going to have for British Columbia's forest-dependent communities? Sounds like a pretty reasonable question to be asking. What kind of answers do you feel you got on that?
1: Unfortunately, it became very clear when the minister is answering the questions that that work had not been done. And I'll give you one prime example why. When you're looking at the reductions of 2.6 million hectares, and, and you know it's very simple math to say, okay, that's 12% of the timber harvesting land base that is now being impacted, and you do the calculations as to how many jobs per cubic meter and that kind of thing, right, and you come out with a number. The challenge is what you're doing here is you're taking away the midterm timber supply particularly from the interior. So this is the wood that was in there that was part of our timber sorted of land base was part of how we were going to move past mountain pine beetle into the next cuts, into the young stands that would be coming up. And so it has a much more profound impact up front than over the long term. And which is why when industry looks at it, they say this is what the real job losses will be because they're looking at it saying, okay, this timber is not going to be available. But I tell you that the one thing I've heard, you know, my phone's been ringing off the hook actually from contractors from right across the province that are, they put their life savings into a piece of equipment. They've got maybe some people that are working for them and suddenly they have no wood. They still have to make payments. They still have to to give notices to people to be laid off. The social impact in communities on this decision, which is not based on science, is going to be very profound. And once those changes happen, they are coming back. And so this will be a permanent downsizing of our forest sector. The other part of this uh, that is really going to be hit hard is actually, believe it or not, the value added. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this government has all been about wanting, you know, higher value instead of volume, this type of thing. But the value added sector is very dependent on being able to access this type of fiber, whether it's, uh, you know, the mills that are in Surrey or Richmond or Delta or, you know, all the way down through in the lower mainland. And they're going to be hit pretty hard with this. A lot of those jobs will disappear. And so it's, a, it's disappointing, and the knock-on effect, not just the forestry jobs, but all of the, you know, whether it's, you know, the coffee shops or, you know, the suppliers or, you know, the accountants, whatever it may be, all of those jobs are going to be impacted from this as well. And it's very disturbing to think that a decision was made surely on politics without the understanding of what the depth of that impact would be. But I'll give you one example, unfortunately, of how this government has actually done this before, and that was when they protected an area up in the peace country for caribou. They didn't do any analysis. They just came out and made the announcement. There was no analysis of what the impact would be, and unfortunately, afterwards, they started to look at and do the analysis, and then realized, well, it's probably going to mean you know a significant hit to the forest sector through there as well.
0: Now, there's clearly issues with uh, conservation and old-growth specimens, we're hearing linkages between old growth forests and climate change there's one member of the BC Liberal caucus Mike Morris from Prince George who has written a paper about his concerns on on forest management and you know he was out last week in social media or was quoted in social media as being a little more supportive of the NDP government's uh, decision than than others in the BC Liberal Caucus. Can you take me into that? I mean, you're someone who understands the numbers on this. You've spent a lot of time, I know, in your discourse with First Nations all around the province, not just in your own riding in the Chaco Lakes. Help us understand some of the nuances here of conservation. What is right to be concerned about, and what is confusing right now, and perhaps not as helpful in resolving this?
1: It's important to know when you're talking about forests, it's not just about trees there is biodiversity issues on the landscape there's wildlife issues you know there's water from watersheds there's there's a wide range of things that we depend on our forests for and that's why so much of our forest is not available for forestry activity that's why you know there is so much protected area in the province and the question in my mind when you're looking at the decisions around this is have we through our parks through our measures and restrictions on the land base to the areas that have been set aside Have we been meeting what we need to protect in terms of, you know, some of the unique biodiversity on our landscape, some of those unique ecologies that we want to be able to preserve as a province, while still having the balance of an area for operating on forestry? And so I, I think it's a valid question to go out and ask about that and to look at that and do these analysis and work. Maybe there's areas that we're protecting that really don't need to be, or maybe there's areas that we need to be doing more measures on. To be able to have that balance, and I think you know it's good to have people like Mike and others raising those perspectives, and you know from their experience on the ground to be able to have that conversation because it's it that's exactly what we need is a broad conversation. We can't just be shutting down perspectives. It's odd, you know, when you mention that because we're a big tent party as BC Liberals, you know, we have a variety of views and we encourage that and encourage those discussions. When you look at the government party, for example, and they passed this Freedom of Information Bill. That's actually still being debated in the House. There were two of their members that were former MPs that had an awful lot to say about freedom of information, and uh, they've been muzzled. They're not allowed to speak, and that's an unfortunate example because our democracy depends on us being representatives and being able to voice our perspectives. So there's times when that doesn't work, of course, mm-hmm. but you know it's part of a healthy democracy to be able to have these kind of discussions.
0: I'm talking with John Rustad. He's the force critic in the legislature down in Victoria. There's a few things I want to hit before our time's out today, John. One of them, there's a question from Peter Millabar. Of course, that's the MLA for Kamloops North Thompson. He got up in the house last week as well. He had some questions, and it speaks to what I call the, or many others call the, rural-urban divide in British Columbia, something that can create a lot of division when you consider that the, the large manufacturing and export base of rural BC provides so many benefits in, urban BC, particularly Vancouver and Victoria, Mr. Millibar pointed out in the house that in uh, Surrey, they're looking at losing shake and shingle mills that uh, employ a lot of residents. There's five mills and two veneer plants in the interior that he's concerned will close. He also raised the possibility of pulp and paper mills going on. And what's the decision-making to get here? So here's my question for you, John. I When I looked at the technical advisory panel on old growth that advised the province to do the things they've now done, I discovered that of the five members, four of them were strongly associated with one environmental lobby organization. And one of those four wasn't a technical expert, but rather a campaign strategist, whatever that is, and the registered lobbyist. So rather than going to academics or scientists or people with technical knowledge, they decided to go to people who were sort of political activists. And there were some, you know, science-based people from the Sierra Club, the organization in question on that. But did it strike you as well, or is it just me? I mean, be honest, that four out of five of those members would be from one lobbying organization. I mean, it just seemed wildly out of whack to me.
1: I certainly agree with you. And that's why I say this decision was about politics more than anything else. It was being done for a purely political reason. And it's unfortunate because communities are going to be hit extremely hard. Families are going to be hit hard. Individual workers are going to be at the core of this decision. I can't go to my constituents and explain to them why this needs to be done. I can't go to them and explain to them why government has made this decision, other than to say they're making it for political reasons. They're making it because they're feeling pressure from environmental groups, and uh, you know we're unfortunately living going to have to live now with the impacts of these things, which is. Going to be pretty tough on you know so many people in this province.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's look for the go forward here, where solutions can be developed, hopefully through some collaboration in Victoria, where all parties can contribute to this. What would a best-case pathway and outcome be where we can take, you know, there are concerns people have all around, and we also see that those concerns exist in society, in the economy, the environment. All these things must be handled in balance. You've spent a lot of time working in government in your years on the government side and now on the opposition side to strike that. Let's give a little bit of hope here. What's the way, in just a minute or so that we've got left here, John Rustad, tell us what we should do.
1: My hope through this, and there's going to be you know, a large rally, I think, on the 18th plan. There's going to be a lot of pressure that's going to be put on government. There's a lot of First Nations that are very upset about this because they were not consulted, and they want an economy too. They want to be able to engage on forestry. So my hope is that the government will see some reason and say, let's pause this. Let's go out and do the actual science and the analysis. Let's make sure we are targeting what we want to have achieved on the landscape. Let's set some parameters around that so we can have deliverables. And then let's have this conversation in a, you know, I guess you could say an adult manner with industry, with environmental, with all players, with, you know, First Nations, especially as well at the table to determine what is the best path and what has been protected, what needs to be looked at. And how do we then also have a a vibrant forest sector that is so needed for both the environment And quite frankly, for our future as a province.
0: John Rustad, you're the MLA for Nechaco Lakes and you're the forestry critic in Victoria. Thanks for this analysis today. Really appreciate your presence. We do hope to have the Minister of Forests on this show. We want to hear all sides of the conversation as we go forward. You've been listening to me, your host, Stuart Muir, in conversation with John Rustad. We'll continue to dig into the important topics about this important industry getting beyond the headlines and at the facts. So tune in to ForestWorks next time to find out the latest on forestry in British Columbia. Thanks again, John.
1: Thanks, Stuart.